Hello, hello, and welcome back to Art House Garage, the snob-free film podcast where we make art house, indie, classic, and foreign cinema accessible to the masses. I'm your host, Andrew Sweatman, and today we've got a discussion about the new fantasy epic, The Green Knight, directed by David Lowery and starring Dev Patel. Connor Allen Smith joins the show for that, and for the Arkansas listeners, we've got a sneak preview of a couple of film festivals coming up in the state. That is the Bentonville Film Festival, which is happening August 2nd through the 8th, and the Fort Smith International Film Festival, August 13th through the 14th. And after that, we continue our Wong Kar Wai marathon with Omaya Jones, looking at the second film in the series, Days of Being Wild. Stay tuned. We are going to talk all about the incredibly exciting new A24 film, The Green Knight, but before we do... We're going to talk film festivals for just a minute. Depending on when you're listening to this, the Bentonville Film Festival is probably happening right now. It's August 2nd through the 8th, both in person and virtually. And this year, the lineup has some really cool stuff, including some Arkansas filmmakers and some people you may recognize from this podcast. More on that in just a moment. The Bentonville Film Festival, or BFF as it's called, started in 2015 and it's run by the Bentonville Film Foundation. Actor Gina Davis serves as the chair of that foundation alongside President Wendy Guerrero and festival producer Jason Netter. What I really like about this festival is their emphasis on diversity and inclusion. If you take a look at their website, you'll find this statement on their About page. It says, The Bentonville Film Foundation is a nonprofit organization focused on promoting underrepresented voices of diverse storytellers. We champion female, non-binary, LGBTQIA+, black, indigenous, people of color, and people with disabilities voices in entertainment and media. I love that, and I love that they regularly showcase local Arkansas filmmakers as well. At this year's Regional Shorts Showcase, you'll find several Arkansas projects, including these two, that feature some Arthouse Garage regulars. First up is Lullaby, that stars Sophie Barnes, who you may recognize from the recent Zola episode, and she's been on before that as well. Uh, And also in that film is James Basham, who's been on to talk about The Lighthouse and... Uh, marriage Story, and I think at least one or two more. Uh, another film that's playing is called Self-Portrait, and then we will have more on that in just a minute uh, because that is directed by Connor Allen Smith, who is today's guest, and features the music of Evelyn Landau, who you may remember from the recent episode on Disclosure. So that is very exciting. Congratulations to all those friends of the show. I'm excited that they're getting to screen their films at such a big festival this year. Aside from those, there are some big, buzzy films playing the festival this year as well. Here's a few that caught my eye. First up is a film called Mogul Mowgli. Uh, this is a new film starring Riz Ahmed and directed by Bassam Tariq. Bassam Tariq is a name you'll probably be hearing more of because he is right now attached to direct the upcoming Blade movie for Marvel, so he'll probably be in the news a bit more down the down the road here. I've been hearing a lot of good things about Mogul Mowgli, and I'm really eager to see Riz Ahmed in anything again after he was so amazing in last year's Sound of Metal. I'm also hoping to catch up with a film called Coda, which is about a deaf family and their one hearing daughter who is a singer. Uh, It took Sundance by storm this year. I've been hearing lots of good things about it, and that's playing this week as well. And finally, a film called Language Lessons. It first caught my eye because Mark Duplass is the co-writer. I'm a pretty big fan of most of the work of the Duplass brothers, but then I realized that the other writer and the director for this film is Natalie Morales. I recognize her mostly from Parks and Recreation, 
She played Lucy, but I'm really excited to see what she does behind the camera. There are lots of other films playing as well. In addition to films, there are some fascinating panels that are planned, including one that's going to kind of launch a research study on Asian and Pacific Islander representation in the media. I'm excited to check that one out. Uh, you can find that and more in the full list of films and panels at bentonvillefilm.org. I'm really excited for the Bentonville Festival. I'll be attending virtually this year. You can follow along my social media at uh, Arthouse Garage on Instagram and Twitter, and I'll be posting about the things going on. And in more festival news, there's actually a new festival in Arkansas just a few days later on August 13th and 14th. This is the inaugural Fort Smith International Film Festival presented by the River Valley Film Society. According to their website, quote, the Fort Smith International Film Festival is a two-day experience celebrating the artistic expression and diverse experiences of Native American and people of color through film, panel discussions, music, food, and more. I'm excited that this is happening because I grew up in Van Buren, just outside of Fort Smith, so this is my old stomping grounds. The festival is taking place in a handful of venues around the city, and there's also an Arthouse Garage alum featured. That's my old friend, Michael Ferris, who you may remember if you've listened to our episode on the Maltese Falcon. His film, The Rock of Gibraltar, is playing the festival, and interestingly, the film is partly an homage to classic noir films like the Maltese Falcon. Michael and I used to make home movies together back in high school, and now he's off showing his work at film festivals. That's pretty cool, and I'm so proud of him and his film. Go to fortsmithfilm.com to find all the details on the festival and how you can attend, and you can find links to those things in the show notes as well. All right, if you came here just for the Green Knight, sorry for all the festival talk. We're almost there. Let's introduce today's first guest. It's my friend and filmmaker, Connor Allen Smith. Connor is a director and actor, and he's the resident artist for Prairie Creek Productions. And he starred in one of my favorite films from last year's Filmland Festival. That's a short called Fletcher. He also directed a fascinating short called Phosphorescence that also played that festival. And he's back with a new short called Self-Portrait. We'll talk just a minute about his new film before we get into the main event, which is, of course, The Green Knight. Okay, The Green Knight. This is a big one. I've been waiting for this movie for a long time. It's been delayed and delayed by the pandemic, but it's finally here, playing in theaters. This is the latest film from director David Lowery, and it's a huge fantasy epic based on the classic story, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. I really enjoy medieval literature and Arthurian legends, so I suspected that this would be right up my alley. It stars Dev Patel, Alicia Vikander, Joel Edgerton, and many more, including Ralph Einson, who has one of my favorite voices ever as the Green Knight himself. I'm so excited to dig into this movie, so here is my conversation with Connor Allen Smith. Welcome back to the podcast, Connor Allen Smith. How are you? I'm doing all right. Yeah, happy to be here. Uh... I've been, uh, it's been a minute, but I'm, I'm, I've, I, I, we got a festival going on and I've been really busy, but it's been, uh, one of the things that's getting me through all this busy period right now is I've been listening to old episodes of Art House Garage. So it's, uh, really exciting to be back here and, uh, again, getting to talk with you. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. When we talked about, uh, First Cow last time, that, that has remained one of my favorite episodes that I've done. So I, I thank you and I'm so glad to have you back. And since that time, I also, you connected me to Evelyn Landau, who came on to talk about, um, disclosure not so long mm-hmm. ago and that's actually a good transition because she has done some music for your 
latest short film, uh, which I want to talk about and, um, and the festival that's coming up with it. So that film is called Self-Portrait, which I have seen it, and it's very good. Uh, tell us <laughs> about the film and what, uh, what's coming up as far as the festival run. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. A quick sidebar on Evelyn. She's she's special. She's a one of my favorite artists and a <laughs> yeah. frequent collaborator of mine. So I, I, uh, I'm excited y'all got to connect. And uh, yeah, self portrait is just another instance of us uh, me or me being lucky to, to to work with her again. So mm-hmm. she actually did the the music for and did our stereo mix. So our, like our initial like sound uh, oh, cool. sing, soundscape for a self portrait. Um, so yeah, uh, with self portrait, we're, we're really excited. Uh, I'm, or I'm excited to tell, especially Arkansas folks, that it's going to be premiering at Bentonville Film Festival next week, um, or this week, whenever this is dropping. Um, <laughs> this is actually going to drop on the second, so the first day oh, of wow. the festival is the exactly. second. So yeah, and it is live right now. Click <laughs> yes. that link in, in the bio. <laughs> Go watch this movie and some other great regional stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I know you've also had, um, not to digress too much, but Sophie Lynn. I met her. Um, uh, on the Q and A last week with uh, Claire Barnett's film. Oh, uh, cool! Yes, yeah, and Claire's wonderful too. But yeah, I've had Sophie yeah. on the podcast, and uh, James Basham is also in that film. Kind of, it's a short, but he's in it for a yeah. minute, and he's been on the podcast several times. So yeah, lots of Art House Garage folks uh, on and the Bentonville Film Festival this year, which is cool. Exactly. Yeah, all those Art House Garage fans, come on out. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> uh, whether you're in North Arkansas or click that or watch them <laughs> online, they're gonna be accessible. Thank you, yes, Gina. Yes. Um, but yeah, no, so we're, we're premiering there for our world premiere, uh, which is really exciting. Um, uh, me and my partner are going to be driving down there. We have another creative partner who's already or who's currently still based in Fayetteville, Arkansas. So we're going to make a thing of it uh, to try to kiss some babies uh, with, with COVID in mind and <laughs> yes. shake some hands, do all the fun stuff. Um, but more than anything, kind of just get out of Chicago for a minute and be back and uh, be back home. Um, so we're excited for that. And then as far as the project itself, you know, it's a very, uh, it's a kind of in the title, a very personal project, and um, one that it's it's kind of odd to sh- to show people, uh, for people to be excited, enthusiastic about it, and welcome it to a festival like BFF mm-hmm. is very humbling and uh, also very odd. It's like, why is this interesting to people? <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, that's yeah, a little bit about it. It's sort of a day in the life during quarantine, and and it's um, yes. it, it's kind of interesting because I mean it's such a weird cultural moment moment 18 months or whatever now that it's been but that there's certain you know creative things that have sort of try to capture the feeling of that and like i think about the the bo burnham special inside mm-hmm. from recently that uh, was is such a big creative funny thing but and this is very different than that obviously but yes. uh, much more serious in tone and um but i think it's it's doing a similar thing at least it's, there's something cathartic about realizing you're not alone in what you're going through in, in this weird time so yeah i, I think it's great for that reason Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was, that was exactly what it was. Um, I, last year, I really struggled in a lot of ways of figuring out as I was kind of in the beginning of the starting this or transition into putting stuff out there creatively and thinking like, well, what, what, what do I do right now? What can I do right now? It feels like in a lot of ways I shouldn't be doing anything right now. Um, but just processing through my own emotions, it it was really the kind of, uh, it, it's, it's cliche, which makes it kind of hurtful that it's, that it's true and still powerful to me, but it was like, well, a filmmaker makes a film. So, uh, I really yeah. sat down and put pen to paper and, uh, got my creative people, uh, and friends like Evelyn involved. And we put together this kind of really, what was supposed to be a time capsule or, a, mm-hmm. a little Polaroid of what me and my partner were going through last year on a day to day basis. And, try and focus on the motion of it more than the the exactness of it and yeah i think there's some seriousness to it but i i, I like i i'm hoping that it's self-aware enough so it's not too dour because we're definitely <laughs> we're, we definitely uh had a very privileged perspective uh in our 
in our very nice but cramped uh, uh, apartment last year. Uh, we lived in a 400, 500 square foot place uh, and both worked from home and didn't go outside because we were in Chicago and there's just too many people. So yeah. Wow. We, yeah, it was a dynamic space without with not a lot of with not a lot of capacity for entropy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so excited for people to see it. That is playing at the Bentonville Film Festival. Details are in the show notes. You can go to uh, the Bentonville it's bentonvillefilm.org for like schedule and all of that. But yeah, you can also watch it virtually, which I believe is on demand. Kind of kind of you pay your, your ticket price and watch it this week uh, at what, whatever point you want. So please check that out. Uh, I'm really excited that. That you are included and and that your film is getting out there i oh, appreciate it yeah yeah well i guess without further ado let's get into the film we're here to talk about today the 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 big film which is the green knight friends brothers and sisters who can Regale me and my queen with some myth. For tale. Oh, greatest of kings, let one of your knights try to land a blow against me. Indulge me in this game. I will meet thee. Let's talk about The Green Knight. This is the latest film from director David Lowry, uh, and it stars Dev Patel, it stars Alicia Vikander, it stars Joel Edgerton, uh, some other really great people. This is a, an Arthurian legend. It's the story of Sir Gawain, which the pronunciation of that is interesting. Maybe we could talk about that. There's different ways to maybe pronounce Gawain, Gawain, um, and The Green Knight, the, the medieval story, Sir Gawain and The Green Knight. It's sort of a, a new adaptation of that uh, reimagination in some ways of that that old story. Um, and it is just a really epic, big, large-scale fantasy movie, um, the likes of which I haven't seen in a while. And so I was excited. I mean, I've been excited for this for, I feel like, two years now or something, however long. It's been delayed and delayed because of COVID, but it's also... Um, just been i think on the docket for a long time so i'm glad it's finally here and that i've seen it and i can't wait to to kind of get into it um so connor before we talk about this movie what's your relationship with david lowry and his other films have you seen others of his his movies yeah no i'm a i'm a big fan um yeah ain't them body saints uh old man and the gun pete's dragon even it's that one's a little more uh saccharine and modeling in some ways but it's still <laughs> really well made um being from that Disney machine, but yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a, I, I like to say I'm a big fan because whenever there is like a, a somewhat young or like whether it's Jeff Nichols or other young filmmakers from the South that are like, that are ahead of me, I, they kind of take on this like I don't know 
uh, inspirational uh, feat in a lot of ways. And David Lowry's a Dallas kid. I'm originally from Dallas, and I got a lot of family still in Dallas. So uh, when I heard, uh, I think it was the, the first ruckus I heard about him was about Ain't the Body Saints. And so uh, I watched that. Um, uh, it's the Casey Affleck. Uh, and it's uh, Mara Rooney, uh, a little yeah. like kind of uh, very Malachian, and a little, like kind of uh, – uh, romance and it really took my breath away it's just a, it's a gorgeous film so really since then I, i've been a fan over this like almost gosh a decade now which is, is odd yeah, to think wow. about that's it. been that long um but yeah because uh, he's still i mean he's still so young and feels so young um and i'm excited to see what he makes going forward but yeah so I, i'm a fan um, I'm interested to know your relationship with him. Is this, was this your first exposure to Lowry? It was not. So actually, I first, like, I think I had heard of him. I remember it was when A Ghost Story was coming out that I kind of was like, "This, this, what's this weird movie that's coming? And then <laughs> um, the Arkansas Cinema Society showed uh, A Ghost Story and Pete's Dragon, actually, and he was there mm-hmm. for Q&A and stuff. Uh, so that was kind of my first exposure. Like I've been wanting to see a ghost story, and then it turned out it was coming here to Little Rock for this event. So I uh, got to watch that and i mean that that film is so unique and and odd and so moving um quickly connected with it and uh it's like like i, I gotta own the copy of this like this is one i need to have <laughs> and like have around uh but then I, I thought pete's dragon was really good too yeah it's for, for what it is and uh, i think there's certain kids movies that don't respect attention spans but this is not one mm-hmm. of those like this one like it's a little slower than a lot of kids movies and it has some like serious emotion to it uh, it's like heavy in some ways uh, that yeah. that a lot of like family features aren't but I, and I think that that's a good thing about it um but yeah and then so after that I went back and watched Ain't the Body Saints and um yeah it, I I always wanted to compare it to um uh the assassination of of uh Jesse James oh just sure there, just because it's kind of a similar time period and we got Casey Affleck in there but yeah it's more <laughs> of a romance and I think that that's well, you could also argue that Jesse James is a romance, but anyway, yeah, um, absolutely. But yeah, I, I think his. I think in that one, I really sense like he has a, a real sense of like um, just setting and, and set design and production design um, that you get in a ghost story, but it's very different when it's kind of a period piece like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of felt that those were the strong suits there. And it's interesting that he, I, I learned this in Q and a like, a couple years ago, but he started out as an editor and I, I always try to think about like wh- what a filmmaker did before they were a filmmaker and whether that, mm. uh, or whether before they were a director anyway, whether that kind of informs it, um, uh, their, their movies. And so I, I think you could probably make an argument that the green Knight is a very, uh, specifically edited movie, and that's probably to its credit. Um, but then one other thing I want to mention: uh, he, I, he also has a short film on Criterion Channel called Pioneer, that is really good as well. It's just about fifteen minutes. Um, it's uh, Will Oldham, and he's telling mm. a, telling a story to his son, like a bedtime story, and it's really good. I really like it. And actually, there's a little connection I found to this movie we're going to talk about. But, you know, Will Oldham is in A Ghost Story as well. And that's yeah, is that, was sequence. that the, the Rosetta Stone? I, I know he had written that monologue for A Ghost Story uh, previously, before A Ghost Story even existed. Was that was that the source material? Or I, is that... Uh, I don't remember exactly, know? but I think it's different. I think it, okay. but it's... It, it's and this is kind of what I want to get to when we talk about Green Knight too is kind of about the power of storytelling, and I think that that's yeah. um, a cool thing about this movie too. So yeah, check that out. I'm going to shout that out as well. Just that's on Criterion Channel if you have access to that. Uh, it's a it's a good one. 
so yeah, big, big fan of David Lowry. I'm excited to, and, and I think I saw like a tweet or something long ago that this was his next thing. He's going to do Sir Gowan mm-hmm. and the Green Knight. And I studied, uh, I was an English major. I had a medieval literature class. And so I had read this story uh, and I was like, wow, that's an interesting kind of thing to, to be your next project. <laughs> um, and yeah, so maybe we can talk a little bit about the adaptation of it in a minute, but so yes, there was a lot of hype for this movie after being delayed, all of that. Um, did this one live up to your expectations? Yeah, I think in a lot of ways. Uh, I mean, uh, you, you had really apt kind of uh, uh, descriptors of, of, of his work earlier, but I think the things that stood out to me initially, or not, like at what I've been a big fan of uh, David Lowry over the years, has been his world building. Because even mm-hmm. though a lot of this stuff takes place in somewhere close to reality, it's definitely not... Uh, yeah. it, it's definitely not. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And often it's not a reality. It's not even like the normal like cinema or Hollywood reality. It's a, it is someone off the beaten path, which I, which I've always appreciated. Um, and then the, the other thing that really stood out to me with his work is, is his sense. And I think this becomes because he wasn't an editor is a sense of duration. Mm-hmm. He has a real patience mm-hmm. um, that I think uh, a lot of us uh, can, can learn from as young filmmakers or as filmmakers. Um, and it's just kind of, in a lot of ways, drifting uh, against the stream where, you know, so much of uh, content's getting in shorter form and more cuts and faster trying to keep attention spans. Mm-hmm. I think there's a really valid counter movement, which is just say, um, uh, no, that's just when you do things like that, that's another format. And what's great about big movies on a big screen is when you have an audience sit down with a big image for a long time and you don't give them the escape of a particular mm-hmm. cut. Um, and I think all those things, uh, or both those attributes were really on display and in green night, there are some really wonderful long takes in this film that really are, um, putting the mindset of, of Sir Gowan, mm-hmm. um, as he's on this kind of, uh, interior, uh, and, um, really it's like a psychological, uh, journey. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it does a great job of empathizing you, uh, or empathizing you with that character's mindset. Um, but also, um, in addition, the, the world itself, I mean, you just look around every single inch. You talked about set decoration is just is decorated to a T. It's so thorough. Um, and uh, from the green belt he wears to the crown, uh, the, the flaming crown, everything's mm-hmm. gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, completely agree. Yeah, the world building is that's a good way to put it. Because even like in a ghost story, like it's pretty small, like contained sets, but the world is so big where where that movie goes is so surprising exactly. and so big. And yeah, doing that with with seemingly little, you know. And I think yeah, this movie does that wonderfully. And that that's probably if I had to just say like the one thing that sticks out about this movie is is just the world and being able to like live in a in this medieval setting and it, it can mm-hmm. feel so lived in and um. And that has to do with the cinematography and, and like you're talking about the duration of shots has to do with the production design, the costumes, even the score and, and like all the, the, the structure of the story. It, it just, it, you feel like you're kind of living in this time for a few, for a couple hours. And I really, really liked that about it. Um, yes, this did live up to the hype for me as a, like, I feel like I didn't, like I knew what to expect on some level, but at the same time I had no idea what to expect uh, <laughs> because it's like, where, where are we going to go with this? And I knew, so the story of Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, like the medieval story, isn't, there's not that much there. I was like, so we're, how are we going to make this into a two hour story? I know they're going <laughs> to add something, but I didn't expect it to kind of, it, so it's kind of broken up into little vignettes almost with title cards and like little mini stories along the way, along the quest. It reminded me of like the Odyssey or something. Um, mm-hmm. but Absolutely. It, uh, yeah. But it also, uh, I, I, so I did a little research and someone can maybe correct me on this, but the, a lot of the stories in the middle 
I looked to see if their source material, if those are from actual medieval stories, and I couldn't find anything that matched up quite right. Like as far as I mean, I just clicked around Wikipedia for a while, so it wasn't that in depth. But um, <laughs> so I don't know if some of those were created for this film or what. But the actual Green Knight story that more or less bookends the the film is is pretty faithful to the source, but it it has some 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 notable changes, some some adaptations, uh, and that I think work really well in this movie. So yeah, go ahead. No, yeah, I, yeah. I think uh, that was something that I tried to release myself because I, I, I did not have a relationship with this story um, or this tale um, really because I, I studied classics a little bit, but most of my and uh, at the University of Arkansas, but most of that was uh, Greek and Roman stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as far when it comes to medieval times, really the only stuff I've read from that it would be like Saint Augustine um, mm-hmm. and some philosophy, mm-hmm. but nothing like really uh, narrative or. or um, or or so whimsical yeah and so yeah i tried to just release my uh, expectations of mm-hmm. any, of whether things were uh staunchly adaptated or or not mm-hmm. um or even kind of uh maybe this is maybe this is a, a peek inside how i watch movies i try to kind of also just release my uh need to know mm-hmm. and so didn't just to kind of like feel the expression and the mood of it all and i could unpack it and you know fact check it later but Definitely in the moment last night, because I was at the the first screening, I think they did in Chicago um, at the Music Fox, which is like our, oh, one nice. of our uh, old art house theaters. Yeah, it was, it was really lovely. And uh, one of the like basically the, the the fullest house I've been in since since mm-hmm. COVID. And it was wow. like, it was amazing. Um, That's great. But yeah, so it, it was it was a great way to like uh, and this is often used as I feel like derogatory, but it was just true escapism. It was like mm-hmm. just sit down, turn the brain off in some ways, and, like just feel this. Um, this very elemental story happening. Yeah, I love that. And I think there's the, one of the things I wanted to mention about it is just there's kind of a sense of wonder that that mm-hmm. you don't always get in movies. Like I think probably the last big like fantasy epic that I really have seen is Lord of the Rings. And and there's probably a lot of viewers are going to go into this expecting something more like that. Uh, but this is not that. And like we talked about with those long cuts and the long cuts and the, the patience that he gives like, uh, there's not an action scene every 10 minutes uh, and it's just a very different kind of film than that. I think mm-hmm. the audience I was with maybe wanted Lord of the Rings. I, I can talk <laughs> about that later, but <laughs> they weren't a great audience, but here in, here in Little Rock, but, yeah. um, but it, I, I really yeah connected with it for that reason. Um, the, like you don't really know where it's going to go. I think that's some of the fun of it and some of the things that happen along the way are, are really surprising, but yeah. Well, you said a word there a second ago that really resonated with me, which is like the imagination aspect of it. Because I feel like, um, and maybe this is because maybe this is not what all audiences want to or mainstream audiences want, but um, but I, that's not for me to decide or, sure, yeah. or smarter people will make that decision. <laughs> um, but as far as, you know, I feel like so much just my um, armchair analysis is so much of filmmaking these days, or especially bigger uh, filmmaking is so unimaginative and not mm. that it's uncreative, but it's just so based in realism mm. or making Iron Man look like the physics look mm. exactly how it's <laughs> supposed to look Yeah, where this like really does not care about whether it's sticking to the story or how the mm. physics of everything. Um, it's constantly playing with mood and with, uh, with things that cause an emotional and kind of uh, spiritual reaction that I think, mm. uh, that it, it's paying way, way more attention to to the the through line of of those things than than the reality of it all, which I think is 
which we're hungry for, or at least I'm hungry for. I love that. You said the word spiritual, and that always sets me off in a good way. <laughs> that's, one of, <laughs> that's one of my words. Thank you. Yeah, but I think I think that's absolutely a, a part of this. You know, it's uh, we talked to my previous episode with my friend Omaya. We're, we're doing Wong Kar Wai, the Wong Kar Wai Criterion mm-hmm. box set. Uh, we talk about, we're talking about um, Days of Being Wild, and we kind of just touched on the whole vibes conversation, which is a kind of a weird thing that's happening in like <laughs> film twitter and stuff right now basically to sum it up and maybe a not great way is there's certain movies that you might watch for plot and others that you might watch for like mood and tone and quote-unquote vibes and and it can be both right i don't think it has to be either or but yeah. i think this movie definitely sets the tone in a mood and a, like if, if you want to go and have a vibe this is a great movie for you yeah because it is it is slower and again it's not super action-packed that like like you might think about a medieval story but it really gives you time to kind of live in that world and experience it. Uh, was there anything as far as like thematic material that stuck out to you with this movie? Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, growing up in, you know, the Bible belt and in Arkansas, you know, the, this whole idea of, of, uh, chastity and honor are all mm. things that feel and obviously yeah. just, just there's a there's religion the, religious themes um throughout the whole thing i mean in the opening moments uh sir gawain is lying about going to mass <laughs> so <laughs> uh, a lot of a lot of this felt very contemporary and very mm. relatable in a lot of ways um you really see this uh am- amazingly acted dev patel performance and character um just being the most one of the most relatable things i've seen in a minute because he is just so um uh uh, he's so green um <laughs> yeah I, I was trying to i was trying to avoid the fun there you go i like but, it i like it but yeah but it, it was just so um so nice and i mean um and so relatable but yeah as far as like specific themes yeah i, th- I think those are the two biggest things it's just this idea of honor and and um how do we as a society especially as we like are starting to reconcile with these things that are irrecyclable horrors that we've done to each other and Mm. done to specific groups of people, but how can we move forward or how do we, uh, is there, is there a way to move forward? Um, and is there a code that we can, that we can develop, that we Mm. can have this sense of common, um, manners uh, about us, uh, or is it all just, or is it all just chaos, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, well, that's really interesting to think about. Yeah, because in this time period, especially like people live by a code and like especially the knights, like they want to be chivalrous. They want to, um, you know, have honor and nobility. And that's absolutely a, a big part of it. And, and that kind of is connected to just one of the things that I really liked about it is sort of the the theme about, you know, facing death and um, the inevitability of death and how, I mean, that drives so many stories. And like, I actually just thought about the seventh seal just from him like walking through the forest and like and approaching death potentially you know like i think i wonder i don't know if that was an intentional like uh, connection point but that was definitely on my mind um but then it also connects to the a ghost story because you know so much of that movie is about facing death and like how how does death affect us as people uh, so i thought that was a cool way and that that really plays out in the ending in ways that i won't spoil but i thought that was uh, really good and that's kind of i think what the original text is about is um you know doing something honorable in the face of death like kind of kind of kind of is the basic idea uh, absolutely yeah the uh the other thing that i really connected with a lot was was the storytelling kind of aspect of it and and kind of how we as humans make stories out of things and make legends and um the the, the movie really kind of plays with that idea so right at the bat we have you know images of king arthur and lady guinevere like paintings and portraits of them and um just kind of hinting at like 
and then that kind of the real life context of was King Arthur a real person? Historians don't really know. He mm. may only exist in literature. Um, so we have these images that people even like contemporary, like at this time, uh, were connecting with, um, these these heroic figures and gowan wants to be one of those he wants to be legendary and there's talk about i want to be a legend i want to achieve greatness one of my favorite lines is when his his lover in the beginning of the film says something like uh greatness why is goodness not enough and it's Mm. like that that kind of idea of like he's striving for this and why you know um but then we see the story told uh, like so we we watch it play out which it's mostly in the trailer if you've seen and this the kind of the premise is that this green knight shows up um says if anyone can land a blow on me uh then one year later you come to me and i'm gonna do the same to you and like that's kind of the the structure and apparently that was a pretty common thing in medieval literature like it's like the a, a game of blows or something like that so mm-hmm. Gowan beheads the Green Knight, and then a year later is supposed to, you know, go to the Green Chapel and uh, face the same fate. Uh, but the Green Knight, of course, just picks his own head up and talks to them and rides out, and it's like a really <laughs> cool scene. Um, but so we see that play out in in a puppet show. They're like telling, they're they're singing songs about him um, in the bar. At one point, he's the, the people are telling his story like you're the guy from the story, and so like people have created the story around him. And the story also changes and kind of grows and takes on its own meaning. Like we, we hear it from the barman and it, some of the details are not exactly right. Like he used the sword or he used the ax and like the, the story changes and kind of becomes its own thing. And so that, mm-hmm. that kind of idea, sorry, this is my, I have a lot of notes on this. I'm just going to keep rolling. <laughs> no, go for it. This is, this is great. Yeah. The, um, he runs into a guy on the battlefield like a later and there's of course all these dead bodies around, but, um, the guy he is talking to says, you know, they say the king killed 960 men all on his own. And so we see, again, like kind of the myth-making and the legend-making about King Arthur there. Um, and, and so what are the things I really like about it, too, is that we see those people's reactions. So, like, this is a story that he's, you know, probably fabricated or somehow has heard, but it's a story that's, like, lighting his fire. Like, he's, he's, he has, finds hope or finds meaning somehow in this story. Mm-hmm. And the same thing when we see the puppet show, we see the thrills and we like there's close ups of the faces of the the young people watching this and, and like they're they're thrilled by it, but they also like seem to find some hope in like this heroic story. And I think that kind of then can carry on to us as the audience for this film, because it, it's like if this is kind of what kind of what you were saying, it's it's kind of grounded in reality, but all these fantastical things are happening in it. And it's kind of a way of saying, like, these stories have value for us, too. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and maybe that's one of the things that makes us human is that we we kind of love, love stories. We make stories um, out of nothing sometimes and uh, find meaning in that. And that's kind of part of the human experience. And kind of going back to the, my medieval literature class, we also studied hagiography, which is <laughs> the study of saints and like saint stories. And some of these saint stories are wild like so i remember learning what these stories were i was like okay these are like things that would have been told in church like in the catholic church these are catholic saints but then you hear some of the stories and they're absolutely wild and it's like do people think this was true or or did they not care if it was true it was just and, and it made me think like greek mythology had things that seem unbelievable to us now yet those stories brought people meaning and so in hagiography you have like people fighting dragons and all kinds of stuff and it's like mm-hmm. this is a saint for christ um there's all kinds of interesting stuff in there, but I think again points to this kind of meaning making and story making. And so that, that also is kind of saying like, was King Arthur a real person? 
it doesn't really matter. Like these stories have meaning on their own. So anyway, I really yeah, like all no, of that. <laughs> no, that, that, I mean, there's a lot to chew on what you just said. Yeah. And, and I feel like it's, uh, uh, what you're talking about it's through the ages we've seen over and over. Um, and I think we are all immediately familiar with it and we don't need to digress too much, but we're all very familiar with people not wanting to believe in basic truths that are, mm-hmm. are proven in our current climate um, or things mm-hmm. that like we have scientific record for or, uh, you know, there are certain lies out there that it's just more exciting to believe in the myths. And it doesn't matter if it's grounded in reality or if it's grounded in science or um, or a lot of things. If someone is more attractive or more exciting to people, they're going to want to believe it. And humans have proved that uh, over and over for millennia. Um and it's kind of what's terrifying about us, uh, but also <laughs> yeah. kind of uh, is also aspirational of us. Is yeah. mm-hmm. when we look at the glass half full, I think we can see people who really want to believe in greater and greatness and mm-hmm. want to support other people. Um, uh, <laughs> again, really trying to be maybe yeah. even naive when I say that, but um, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, I think there's there, there's a lot of weight and um, and a lot of uh, misplaced or not misplaced, but there's. There's a lot of hope that I think is in, in, in all of us and that we try and we try and uh, we, we try to utilize, but uh, often gets misplaced. Um, and it's that that weight of, of other people's hope is often uh, debilitating. And we see that, I think, with Sir Gowan in this yeah. in the story. We see that mm-hmm. over and over in history uh, where people um, I mean, you referenced uh, uh, just uh, the assassination of Jesse James earlier, that the whole myth making behind that character mm-hmm. um, ruined him. Um yeah, the, the way the way legends spread is a thing that we see over and over uh, in, in storytelling and, and, and history. Hmm. Yes, and I sorry, yeah, I, I just love the movie. Kind of deals with that, and, and like I, this movie, I really have to watch again to because it's pretty complex. And like, it's like I, I need to revisit like what exactly was going on with his mother at the beginning, and like what role does she play in all of this? Uh, so Sir Gowan is is King Arthur's nephew. We should mention, and that's that's from the mm-hmm. original story too. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of those things and, um, uh, Joel Edgerton's character is really interesting and kind of what plays out there is, uh, there's some surprises actually. So I won't spoil it, but I'll kind of hint at it. So if people have seen it, there's like a surprising moment that they have in the woods, uh, near the end of the film, uh, Sir Gowan and, and Joel Edgerton. And that mm-hmm. was something that made the audience I was with and here in North Little Rock kind of giggle. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> that I, I, I was like surprised by that too. But then I, when I was looking back yeah. at the story, that's actually in the original text too, and actually more of it. Um, so there's mm-hmm. some interesting readings of that original story too. Um, so anyway, yeah, I think I, I like that a lot. Um, yeah, I think this movie is really well plotted. Like I, I really love the story with St. Winifred. Uh, where he goes to this house in the middle of, uh, the wilderness kind of, and, um, meets this woman there and kind of what plays out there is really cool. If you've seen the trailer, you know, there's a giants in this movie the, the giant scene <laughs> I loved, I thought that, yeah. that may be my favorite part of the whole movie and kind of getting at that, like sense of wonder and spirituality potentially that you mentioned, like, um, I don't know, just there's, it's kind of pointed for me to the connectedness of things without spoiling exactly what happens. I mean, it's a really short scene, but, um, there's sort of a, the presence of nature in this movie is interesting and sort of the way it's, um, I don't know, I kind of pointed to a connectedness, general con- sense of connectedness for me is how I read it. But anyway, I, yeah, I'm a big fan of this movie. I know there are more things to say. Uh, do you have other kind of 
things you want to say about this movie before we no no i think you did a great job uh and you're and i mean this and all the best in your monologue i think this is i'd highly <laughs> recommend this film i think it's going to make some people uncomfortable but i think i challenge them to to sit through it um and really uh sit through the meditation um mm-hmm. yeah i think it it's it's just really profound and i think in the in the patience it has and and the questions it's asking um yeah, and, and even just hearing somebody else talk about it, you know, I'm I'm because I because again I watched this this ten hours ago. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so so I, I'm still definitely unpacking it myself and like listening to things you unpacked immediately. It's, it's all it's all been great, and I think this is we need more mo- more movies like this that are uh, really really sticking with folks and sticking to people's crowds that um, that you can't not talk about that you can't not think about for a while. Yeah, I think the complexity of it really lends itself to like lots of different readings too, which is not necessarily that common with like a big studio movie. So I think that's a cool thing about it too. And yeah, like the meditative aspect of it, absolutely that's there in a ghost story as well. So I think that's a cool kind of through line as well. Well, yes, that is uh, The Green Knight directed by David Lowry. It's from A24. It's in theaters now. Uh, We both highly recommend it, it sounds like. Yeah, three thumbs way up three thumbs (laughs) all right well thank you so much connor for joining the show again and i will link to all the the bentonville film festival stuff go and see self-portrait or watch it at home if you can uh and thank you so much for being here my pleasure yeah and i I mean i'll I'll also say this if you're out there at the festival we're doing our screening the regional showcase is tuesday at 11 come let's come shake hands if if you're comfortable with that um i know there's gonna be some other filmmakers that um I'm sure we'll be, we'll be happy to meet you. We'd love to have you there in person and uh, love to say hi um, and connect with just other great uh, uh, movie fans from Arkansas. There's uh, the Arkansas film scenes growing and the film community uh, is in the film uh, audiences are integral mm-hmm. to that, to that growing. So um, yeah, so let's, let's shorten that gap um, yes. if we can. But yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. And connecting in person is, it's like weird that we can do that again. So yeah, do exactly. it when you can safely. I love it. <laughs> well, cool. Thing. well thank you so much and we will have you back hopefully soon for something else i'm hoping all right thanks connor all right huge thanks to connor for being on the show and congrats again on your film self-portrait after i listened back to our talk on the green knight i realized that there were so many things i didn't mention we didn't talk about king arthur at all i forgot to mention the incredible score by daniel hart we barely talked about the fox or about dev patel's wonderful performance in this that's okay It's a big movie. There's only so much we had time for. I'm obviously a huge fan of this movie, and I highly encourage you to seek it out. And now we move from medieval England to 1960s Hong Kong as we continue our series on the world of Wong Kar Wai. Omaya Jones is back, and today we're looking at the second film in the Criterion box set, Days of Being Wild. Spoiler alert, I really like this movie too. Uh, We talk all about the film, its stars, its production and some of the signature Wong Kar Wai touches you can find in it. Omaya Jones has been on the show many times, and he's joining us for this whole series. He's a film podcaster, and he's had a part in lots of film things in the area, like programming the Arkansas Time film series back before the pandemic. Welcome back again, Omaya Jones. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you, and uh, thanks again for being back for this. It's our second of the six episodes we're going to do on Wong Kar Wai, uh, and I'm excited to get into it. But but before we do, um, how have you been, and and what have you been watching lately? Anything else besides Wong Kar Wai? Yeah, um, I've been I've been doing pretty good. Uh, in addition to Wong Kar Wai, I've been watching 
Well, I, I told you before I've been watching NYPD Blue um, because I have, I don't yes. know, a sense of nostalgia. But I also watched a film that I think thematically links pretty well with the film that we're talking about tonight. And that oh, was cool. uh, Saturday Night Fever, which I'd never seen before and had been on my list for a long time. Nice, and then yeah. I got interested again, I think last year when that Bee Gees documentary came out, or maybe it was mm. earlier this year because I don't know how time works anymore. But um <laughs> But yeah, like uh, there, there's especially there's the way that the men and women negotiate their relationships with each other mm-hmm. that I think there's some resonance with, um, specifically the toxic nature of the way the men treat the women. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I haven't uh, seen that movie since college, but I was surprised. Like, I was like, oh, it's this dancing movie. I didn't know it had quite so much, you know, dramatic teeth to it. I don't remember yeah. much about it. But it yeah, gets I remember, dark. It gets yeah, being really dark. But yeah. then the dancing scenes are fantastic because yeah. you know it's almost like an art film or something because it's like the dialogue fades away and it's just these extended sequences of John Travolta on the dance floor and it's yeah. magnificent, Mes- mesmerizing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about you? Yeah, I want to mention one thing and that is the movie Pig, the new movie with um, Nicolas Cage. I like this movie a lot. I didn't know much about it going in. I, I kind of heard a few little rumblings, but I, it seemed like a movie I shouldn't know much about going in. And that's true. So I won't say too much, but uh, it's directed by Michael Sarnowski and Nicolas Cage is a truffle hunter, I guess is the word. Or, uh, yeah. Truffle hunter. And he has a pig that, that sniffs out the truffles. Um, but it goes in a lot of surprising directions. Um, I, the tweet I sent out is like, it's a weird combination of John Wick and Babette's Feast. Like it has a lot oh, of yeah. both of those movies, which is, I never expected those two things to come together in one movie, but it, that's, that's a pretty, uh, pretty accurate. And, and, and it, it's good. It's really good. Um, Nicholas Cage is being praised a lot for his performance. I think it is a really good performance. Um, I don't think it's going to be like, award worthy or anything like that but i think it's really really good i've been seeing some people say that and i'm like ah, i don't know about that but i do think it's good and it's it's just not quite what we're used to from him sometimes it's a lot more subdued uh and and it's it's solid and then it's uh, alex wolf is the other kind of co-lead in it and he's from hereditary and several other things and he's uh he's really good too so yeah i'll recommend pig go in as blind as you can with it not knowing much and uh, i think you'll enjoy it Awesome. I have not seen it, but by the time this this is uploaded, I will have seen it. So ah, right. I'm planning on going tomorrow night. Nice. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I was playing down at the rave is where I went and saw it. But uh, well, cool. I guess from there, let's talk about days of being wild.
So, kind of basic facts about this movie. It came out in 1990. Uh, it stars Leslie Chung, who we'll see again later in some other, at least one other of these films. Uh, Maggie Chung, who we will also see again, and we already saw in As Tears Go By. Andy Lau, same same for him. He was in As Tears Go By. Karina Lau, uh, Rebecca Pan, Jackie Chung, and there's also a brief appearance by Tony Lung. And we'll talk about his his very odd little scene right at the end of this movie uh, a little later but um so some people we've seen before and some people that you know are kind of regular Wong Kar Wai players it seems like um the I always like looking up the the translations of the title so with As Tears Go By it was a drastically different title from Chinese to English they just like gave it an American or an English title um but this one is basically the same the Chinese translates to true story of a hooligan which i kind of like that little twist on days of being wild um i think other notable things as far as the people involved is the cinematographer christopher doyle this was their first uh partnership or at least the first movie they went they worked on together and he goes on to do i don't know six more films with him i think so they they collaborate a lot going forward Uh, and and i think the cinematography is very, very good in this. So uh, that's kind of a notable thing about it. But yeah. So let me ask you this one. Maya. How many, how many times have you seen this now? Uh, this was my third time seeing this film. Okay. So my first. Um, and yeah, so I guess kind of broad strokes of the plot. Um, we'll, we won't talk too much detail about the ending. I think we can kind of like, I'm not really much that you can spoil, I guess there's a little bit, but anyway, um, it stars Leslie Chung. He plays, yeti and uh he's kind of a playboy kind of drifting through life uh, the essay in the criterion box the um john powers essay refers to him as sort of a rebel without a cause and that that seems to fit i think pretty well uh, he treats women very poorly but he he's very good at seducing them and then he treats them badly he also treats his mother poorly we find out this is his adoptive mother um and he's also very curious to meet his birth mother it's kind of the one thing he seems to really care about in life, but his adoptive mother, Rebecca has been denying him this for a long time. Um, we first like the opening of the movie is him is Yeti seducing Maggie Chung's character who is named Lai Jin. And, um, she works at a soccer stadium. She's kind of in this concession stand alone. And, uh, he, the, the, the opening sequence is him repeatedly going there and, and kind of flirting with her. Um, so they get together and then he she at one point she wants to get serious and he breaks up with her he's very kind of cruel to her uh she's very distraught by this and that kind of comes back into the story he then goes and dates mimi who's a dancer uh and he has a, a best friend named zeb who is also in love with mimi has feelings for mimi uh so that's kind of the the next relationship that that grows there um meanwhile Lai Jin who he's broken her heart she is very distraught she befriends Andy Lau's character whose name is Tide he's a policeman uh, and they have some scenes together uh and then the final third or so is Yeti and he's seeking his birth mother uh and, and kind of the things that happen directly after that so that's that's kind of broad strokes it's kind of all over the place and I think that that may be a something that I need to get used to with movies like this, that there's a lot of threads kind of going in different directions. Um, but uh, you know, again, this is, uh, I feel like I'm the, 
relative newbie to Wong Kar Wai, but I did sense that there's some of his signature things happening in this movie. And I think you said last time, Amaya, that like this is the first one that like, okay, this feels like an, a Wong Kar Wai movie. Uh, so what do you think as far as sort of signature Wong Kar Wai touches that, that are here uh, in this movie? Yeah, I would say the unconventional narrative structure for sure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can sort of see the way that it unfolds that it wasn't exactly scripted there. I think there's a lot of improvisation and there's a lot of letting the actors sort of figure out what the characters are or changing things on the fly, mm-hmm. which is something you know we'll talk about later when we talk about the Tony Long end scene and mm-hmm. sort of some of the things that's going on there. Um, but also, so my understanding is that Wonkar Y and Christopher Doyle both sort of have a background of really appreciating, um, I think, like South American literature. And so a lot of the narrative things that they take are, are from that. And so they're not beholden to like a conventional three act structure. And so you can have this thing where you spend long stretches of time with one character uh, that maybe has a tangential relationship to another. And Mm -hmm. then um, somehow everything sort of wraps around in the end. And and so like in this case, two characters that have no relationship with each other really end up meeting Mm -hmm. in a different situation. Um, And it's just that freedom to, to do things differently and not be beholden to convention. Yeah. Yeah, on that note about the the narrative structure, I think last time you mentioned something about timeline sometimes jumps around a little bit in some of his movies. And so I did notice uh, there are a couple of moments where it seems like we jump out of time or, or something happens out of order. And one of those is the opening credits. We see the shot of these trees going by and this kind of music playing that, that's kind of memorable. And we don't really understand where we are with that until the very end of the movie um they're on a train in the philippines and we see the same shot of them looking at the trees so that was you know kind of comes full circle with that uh and then there's also a really interesting shot of his adopted mother um when she's talking about she wants to go off to the united states with her lover and he's saying he doesn't want her to do that and he's gonna stop her uh, unless she tells him who his birth mother is uh, and there's a shot where it's suddenly like very different environment it seems like maybe she's on a boat or something it's hard to tell Uh, but i i I imagine this is like her on her way traveling to the united states and it would it's just uh like coming up on her back and she turns around and looks like right at the camera so i didn't know if this was foreshadowing that she is going to be able to make this trip or or if we're in his head this is somehow something he's imagining or something she's imagining it's not quite clear but it it was an interesting way to kind of just jump out of that scene uh with a little interesting kind of jump in the timeline i think yeah are you familiar with the uh, the social media conversation around vibes (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) to some degree to some degree uh i I just like this is the kind of film that i think about like if you say like a film was just vibes i think it's something Mm -hmm. like this i think Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I had coffee with a friend recently who was talking about, he was probably, he didn't use the word vibes, but I think he probably would be an appreciator of that sort of thing. Like like people who like, um, think about like Nicholas Winding Refn with The Drive or, or Neon Demon, where there's so much like, whether it's like lighting and music happening and we're kind of getting the vibes yeah and it's more it's more about the experience of like how does this movie make you feel than it is about like the plot and i definitely have had that sort of thing on my mind uh with with the with that series go by that sequence with um take my breath away like i I, i've gone back and watched that a couple times just because it's such a like a 
it's such a vibe it's such a mood piece and it's really interesting and like the lighting comes into that and the music and all of that so yeah that's that's a moment for sure when we see uh his adoptive mother in that scene in that shot that it suddenly kind of changes the vibe a little bit but it's it's definitely like a striking visually striking moment i think absolutely uh, yeah i i had the with the end of the film just the music that plays and you just see characters doing thing with but there's no dialogue or anything in particular mm. happening um it just i could just watch that kind of stuff for hours yeah yeah and i think in, in a, it's almost a different way of like thinking about a movie or, or experiencing a movie but this might be a good way to do that uh like to, to kind of kind of introduce yourself to that like okay this the plot is a little less important here but like kind of try to get lost in this and and how does it make you feel i think that's kind of a cool maybe a cool little movie watching experiment but um more things about like time and memory because i know we that's that's something that he deals with a lot there's a lot of ticking clocks at different Mm -hmm. moments um it seems like there's just like a lot of kind of downtime too like like uh in legend's job at the soccer stadium She's just alone all the time. It's, it feels like until Yeti shows up and kind of tries to seduce her. Uh, also, Yeti seems to maybe not have a job. It's not clear, but he um, is just kind of around and kind of drifting through his life. And, and I think there was something in one of the interviews on the disc that talked about, like, that's one reason to set this in the 60s is because there were people who kind of lived that way um, more than in, in the 80s and 90s when he was actually making these movies. But I thought it was interesting. They just have a lot of time on their hands. Um, but then it, it, there's kind of a, a laziness or just like the the pace is is slow and deliberate, I think. Maybe that's what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. There's also, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say absolutely. I was concurring. Yeah. Um, there's also talk about like the relative feeling of time uh like they talk about the length of a minute um and how a minute can seem so long sometimes so that was interesting kind of looking at at time uh as a as a construct maybe kind of hinting at that which is an interesting thing um outside of the time stuff i I thought a lot about the, the longing and kind of sensuality of it um that's definitely present here there's kind of a romanticism just in the setting and and maybe this kind of gets at the vibes thing too uh but there's like a scene where uh lajin and tide andy lao's character she's you know very distraught and they they walk around the city he's a policeman and he's kind of uh patrolling and and they walk around and kind of talk about life and love and um it's this kind of like special relationship it's not clear if it's romantic exactly or would it be if they had more time together it's not doesn't really address that but i was thinking about like these empty streets in another movie in a in like a a hong kong crime movie which people expected this to be we'll talk a little bit about kind of the reception to it empty city streets at night could feel really menacing or dangerous but in this they feel kind of like romanticized and serendipitous almost like just the, the there's almost a longing just in the in the setting that was really interesting i just kind of had that yeah. and then at the end it re- returns to those shots too so like they walk around the city and then at the end it, it shows shots of these same places they walked now empty and uh kind of hinting back at that it actually reminded me a lot of the end of uh before sunrise the the richard linklater movie mm. where they've walked around the city and having this romantic conversation this whole movie and then the camera just goes back to the places they were now just life is happening and it just kind of gives you this interesting feeling about something really special happened here and um 
and kind of the importance of of locations and that kind of thing but anyway oh i kind of i love i love that because um one thing that i find myself thinking about often is just the way in which places have a history that we are not mm. aware of one that we're not mm. a part of um yeah, it's just it's just interesting to think about all of the things that have happened in the places that we inhabit that that we have no idea what, you know, what mm-hmm. correspond what cons- what what perspired there. Yeah. Um also just thinking about how the film is like a, it's like a long misconnection. Yes, I was going to yeah. talk about that too. Go ahead though. <laughs> oh, yeah, um <laughs> Yeah, just like is when um Andy Lau's character and Maggie Chung's character talking and he says the thing about to call him and she never does. But there's like, at one point there's a phone booth in the, in the area of the town that they're walking around in. And so at one point it rings, we don't know if it's her on the other, on the other, the other end of the line or not, Mm -hmm. but it's just this idea that like, if it weren't for a difference of a couple of days or a week or whatever, um, maybe things could have ended up differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's a ton of misconnections here in this movie. There's um, there's a lot of loves that go unfulfilled. So there's Yeti and, and Lai Jin, who he obviously breaks her heart. And then there's him and Mimi, um, who's the, the dancer. And they have a lot of fights as well. And then he ends up, you know, just kind of leaving town without telling her. Uh, and then there's Zeb, his friend, his guy friend, who's also enamored with Mimi. And that plays into it. But then... The, none of those things ever play out and actually the the yeti and mimi relationship is similar to the as tears go by relationship between those two and that it's um they're waiting for each other in a sense and that uh things things happen that keep them apart then there's um his his adopted mother uh, the, the first thing we one of the first things we see is yeti beating this man up um, we find out it's <coughs> the the man who's courting or wants to marry his adopted mother and he kind of ruins that. So there's that relationship that doesn't happen. Uh, and then there's what you were just talking about with Lai Jin, uh, Maggie Chung's character, and and Andy Lau's character, which, yeah, that seems like there's a longing there that doesn't come to, to, to fruition exactly. And then, of course, there's the relationship with Yeti and his birth mother, who that's that's what actually one of my favorite scenes I was going to mention. Uh, so he, again, to, I don't guess it really matters to spoil this, he does find out where his birth mother is, um and it's a really brief moment in the movie but obviously a a big deal for him um but there's a shot inside this house and it's interesting too because um rebecca his adoptive mother has said kind of fine i'll I'll tell you but you know she's not rich she's they didn't want you blah 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 and she's kind of cruel about it it looks like his birth mother is actually really wealthy we just get a few shots inside her house and then we see her peeking out the window uh, as he's leaving because they, they deny him access to the house. And then in the voiceover, uh, he's walking away in slow motion. And he says, all I really wanted was to see her. And since I can't, I'm going to deny her that too. I know she's watching me now and, and I'm going to deny that. So that was, that was like an emotional moment. And also just like a big deal for his character. But And then the shot is just really kind of arresting as he's kind of walking away and we're hearing him say these things so yes a big big misconnection there that you know something that we're longing and maybe that's all the longing in all his movies maybe it's just like we want these things to happen and they they don't for one reason or another (laughs) and that's uh just built into the plot in a way but yeah that's definitely a lot of misconnection moments do you have any other kind of uh signature wonka why things i have one more 
kind of thing to talk about with that, but go ahead. Yeah, I'm trying to remember if, if this happens in other movies, but here we have characters sort of acting as their own omnipotent narrator. Yeah. Um, so like in the, in the scene that you just mentioned, it's as though he knows that his mother is watching. Um, but how would he know that? And, and I guess it's because he is the author of his story to some extent. Mm-hmm. And he is able to dictate that. And then on the on the other thing is, what I think you're getting at is that like the most dramatic moments are avoided. Mm. Right. So like, and I feel like if this were like a Hollywood film or something, there would be a confrontation or a meeting between Yeti and his mother, or there would yeah. be a mm-hmm. connection between um, Mackie Chung's character and Andy Lyle tied. Um, but here all of that is avoided and it creates um, a more subtle drama that I also think is more interesting and more enriching. And it rewards, uh, it rewards the viewer for being able to sort of sit there and contemplate yeah. Um, and live in the world. Hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's more dramatic in a way too. You may think you could do a really interesting, like psychological breakdown of the character of Yeti, but um, yeah, like even if they had met and had gone poorly in a way that would have given closure or something, but it doesn't even get that. Like he, there, there's no connection at all. And uh, that's almost harder in a way and, and more tragic. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to mention also, and, and this is something, so I've seen Chunking Express before a while ago. Um, but so thinking on that one and also as tears go by in this, there's just kind of a sensuality to this filmmaking that it's so like, I think Christopher Doyle's cinematography is amazing. And it's like, it's a beautiful movie in general. And like the lighting is really good and all of that. But then there's, there's just a lot of, um, like awareness of bodies and i mean Mm -hmm. that in like in intimate scenes there's some very memorable like kind of really sexy moments in this too but even outside of that there's uh there's dancing that some of my favorite moments here are when uh his friend zeb uh is talking to mimi in the lobby of his building and he he asks what she does and she just goes into this little (laughs) dance and it's really like kind of cute and uh just an interesting kind of character moment his reaction to it all is really interesting too uh, but then so there's that, that dancing there's some other dancing moments at, near the end they are going to this in the train station he dances a little bit but there's another moment where he's dancing all by himself uh in the mirror and some music is on the radio and it, i just like it was a really cool little character moment and and yeah there's just kind of an awareness of of bodies there and and skin there's a lot of like shoulders and necks and clavicles and, and like close-ups of faces and um i think that's i don't know it, it, just like in as tears go by the actors here are, are really beautiful and this film kind of appreciates their beauty and i don't mean that in just like a, a sexiness way like even even like zeb again i keep mentioning him this this minor character the camera loves him and like looks at his face and we get close-ups of him reacting to things. And I don't know, just, it, it really, uh, you feel like you get to know these people because we see their faces and we, we, I don't know, we see their physicality uh, a lot. So, yeah, I think, so I know Christopher Doyle has talked about the thing that interests him most in a project is not the script or the story necessarily, but the people and the people that he's working with and he's collaborating with. Um, there, I, I was listening to a Q and a that he did and someone asked him how he picks scripts of what he wants to shoot. And he said, he doesn't read scripts. It's all about the crew. It's all about the actors and people that he's going to be working with. And, and so that's sort of his approach. Uh, and, and also just like, if you, if you look at any other, the, the supplemental uh, features with him, he's obviously loves life. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. he, he seems like the kind of guy who listens to the fullest. Um, we haven't really talked about Christopher, Christopher Doyle a lot, but he, you know, he's Australian. He worked a number of jobs before he became a cinematographer. Like he worked in an oil rig. He worked as a sheep farmer or a cattle farmer or something. Um, and then kind of, it seems like kind of fell into this and it's all about love of photographing people. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's just sort of like the basis of his approach is the relationships with people. Hmm, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's cool. I, I'm not that familiar with him. I'm actually going to click uh, on his IMDb and see if I've seen anything else. Oh, I got, he's did, uh, did you see the Psycho remake with Gus Van Sant? I have not seen it, but he, sh- he shot I, that. He shot Paranoid um, Paranoid Park. Did you go to the ACS screening of that? No, I did not. <laughs> okay. Uh, that was, I, yeah, I saw Paranoid Park when the ACS screened it uh, as part of their Mark Thiedemann thing. And he, so he shot that. He also shot Hero. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm aware of that one. I haven't seen uh, it. And, yeah. and Lady in the Water. Are, those are, those are the ones that, that I one. noted. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, yes, I'm definitely going to check out some more of his work because. Yeah, it's it's very it feels very kind of humanistic or something. Yeah, like they like you're talking about just liking photographing people. I, let's see, I had a few other just kind of things from this I really liked. I was going to mention the voiceover as well, like you did. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's that moment with um, Yeti as he's leaving his mother's his birth mother's house. There's also uh, I, I think this happened a little bit in as tears go by, and I want to say it happens in Chunking Express. I guess we'll find out next time. Um, but it, it does kind of jump from character to character. Uh, there's a little bit of Maggie Chung at one moment. I think she's talking about like how she feels about, I think it's about how Yeti's hitting on her or something. Uh, but then one that I really like was um, Andy Lau's character, Tide. He, and this serves a narrative function too, but he talks about his mother um, who is on kind of on her deathbed and she wanted him to be a policeman or he, or he became a policeman so he could stay close to her. Uh, but he really wanted to be a sailor. And in this voiceover, like right after we've, he has this night of talking with Maggie Chung, he reveals that she does die pretty soon after this point and that he then goes on and becomes a sailor. And then later we see him in his career as a sailor, which is, I didn't, I didn't expect him to come back actually. Um, and the fact that he did was interesting, but, um, so I like that about it. Um, one of my favorite shots, I think, and actually Christopher Doyle. So I sh- maybe should have run this down before, but kind of the other supplements that are on the Criterion disc, there's a trailer and then there's an alternate cut, which we'll talk about. There's an interview with Christopher Doyle and an interview with Maggie Chung. And in the Christopher Doyle one, he talks about this shot as well. Um, it goes from there in the Philippines uh, and they're at this train station um, and the, it's the, the camera starts out in the street and goes up the stairs and we see like people in the street and what they're doing. And then all the way up into this little restaurant inside of the train station. And it's, it's just kind of a, a really cool long shot. And he says in this interview that that was his first uh, steady cam shot that he ever did. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, little insight. And it's a, it's a really cool, cool moment. Yeah. That's a nice bit of choreography. Um, yeah. and it also feels like it wasn't, you know, sometimes if you're watching some Hollywood films, uh, there's like competition and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like I want, I'm going to do like a, a 10 minute single take yeah. of the steady cam because so-and-so did one that was eight minutes. You want to beat it. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I like, you know, like the way when the camera starts out, there's a guy who's sort of like harassing a homeless guy or something. And then it goes mm-hmm. up the stairs and then Yeti's dancing. And then there's like other, some other choreography that's going on, which I think are all hallmarks, hallmarks of a good, uh, 
single take or a good one Um Yeah. Yeah, it's a cool moment. Um, and then oh, one other thing I just wanted to mention was just that there, this kind of goes back to the idea of like the longing and almost like serendipitous relationship. And you mentioned it, it's that, that Yeti and Tide, any last character meet later on. And, and, and at first I was like, that seemed you know like too too far-fetched or something but it kind of explains it that that um they're in the philippines uh, and they're in chinatown in this city and that it's it's pretty small and all the chinese people stay at the same hotel so it makes sense in that sense that they they might run into each other but they kind of hit it off and he basically yeti is passed out on the street and then and tide helps him and takes him to his hotel room um and they have a moment where he he's like it's like it feels like they can sense a connection but they don't know what it is and he says have i met you before and he's like i don't think so but it seems like we as the audience know at least is how i read it like they have this this third party connection through maggie chung's character and they just don't even know it but they kind of somehow they can sense that um there's there's something there between them i thought that was really interesting and later they they find out and they they realize they both know the same woman um but yeah, I thought that was a really cool moment. And, I, and as I, I can't quite remember, but again, as we revisit Chunking Express, I think the same kind of thing happens there, but we'll find out. It's similar. I, I feel yeah. like Chunking Express is more two discrete halves mm, or, yeah. that are connected by a single moment. Mm. And I, I can't remember if the characters interact other than that. Mm. But yes, it, uh, yeah, I'm anticipating getting a chance to revisit that. Yeah, I'm really excited to, to see that one again. Well, uh, let's talk about sort of the reaction to this movie. Um, do you want to talk about that? Uh, yeah, and I, I think that that will flow into the discussion of the alternate cut that's on the disc. So, sure, yeah. Um, among general audiences, among, among its premiere, the reactions were pretty negative. Hmm. Um, but it found, um, but critics, so critics in the critical community outside of that were able to appreciate the film at the time. But that negative reaction is what resulted in sort of last minute edits to emphasize Tony Long's involvement, hmm. which is why in the alternate cut that's on the disc, there is a, a scene at the beginning that is essentially an echo of the scene that's at the end of the film hmm. that brings in Tony Long's character much sooner. Um, yeah, as it stands, it's really odd because it's like this character we've never met. And he ends the movie and it's just him getting ready and it, it's very mysterious and it feels like, okay, this is leading to something and then it doesn't, but yeah, go on. Well, I, apparently initially there was a plan sequel that would have been made had it not been for the fact that the mm-hmm. film didn't do well in terms of box office. Yeah. Um, and so that I guess was the idea of, I have it in my notes here. This is from David Boardwell. And like, so in 2008, David Boardwell, um, I guess got a copy of this alternate cut and, wrote a piece about it on his blog. You can find it on there. Um, so he says, most critics have also accepted Wong's explanation that he had planned a sequel. One showing Yeti's influence over how one showing how Yeti's influence over others lingered long after his death. Patrick Tam told Stephen Tao uh, that the shot was his idea. I set up a set up or trailer for the next film, turning everything he had seen up until now until into a lengthy prologue. But Days of Being Well was a fiasco at the box office, taking in Hong Kong 9.7 million, or about 1.25 million US, and a year in which Stephen Chow's All, All for the Winter earned over four times that. So the sequel was never made. Huh. 
Yeah, that's super interesting, uh, and that that does help explain it. And Maggie Chung, in the in the interview that she has on the disc, sheds a little bit of light on it too. Um, she says that they like the original plan was to film them both at the same time, but it was like planned as two movies. Um, and like the the financing ran out, and maybe like early screen tests weren't doing well or something like that, and then the, the financer cut them off, and so um, they basically ended up having to scrap it and never were able to return to it because it didn't perform well but she says she actually filmed several scenes with tony lung that were for this second this second part uh that that never came out so that was really interesting and, and yeah so the uh alternate cut has him i can't even as the first shot i think from what i read mm-hmm. like he's he's a lot uh, in the beginning or at least it kind of hints at who well, he is yeah. it starts it starts with the scene that's at the end of the film mm, okay now and it's him sort of filing his fingers and then it cuts to like this gambling den and uh, the, the character Tide is there in some capacity. Mm, okay. And we don't know why. And there's like a card game going on. There's a man with a stake. And there are these quick cuts of the of the snake slithering around. And there's a close-up of a hand smoking a cigarette. And so this, this is also from the um, David Boardwell blog, uh, blog post about this alternate cut. But he says, the shots with Andy Lau in a card game and fighting afterwards were done very early in the very early stage of the film's lengthy shoot in which Lau was playing a gangster-like character in the Kowloon walled city. The role had much of the original concept, excuse me, the role and much of the original concept of Days of Being Wild were reprised in Jeff Lau's Days of Tomorrow, 1993. Andy's character was later changed to that of a cop. So I guess for an, one, because the story changed after they shot the footage, mm-hmm. um, that was one reason for cutting it. But after the, you know, the test audiences are the, the film didn't premiere well. They added, you know, more footage of the stars to the front end uh, for this alternate cut so that they could hopefully sell it more easily hmm. um, without having to explain necessarily why, you know, this character is different. And also it's weird because like there is this voiceover. So, th- so the, the end of the film as it, as it is with the Tony Long character, it's just an extended version of what's on the front end with a Tony Long character. It's mm, him okay. in the room getting ready. It's like that same environment. You know, it's just more of that footage. Um, but at the end of the film, there's a voiceover and it's never clear who is speaking and who they're talking about. Hmm, interesting. That's only in the alternate cut. You're saying, because I, I don't remember it. Well, it's, the... in, it's in, the voiceover is in both versions it's and it's character. never really clear. Like if you recall, it's a, a character saying something like, that was the last time I saw him after he came back from the Philippines or something like that. Um, but oh, I ne- assume that was tied, but yeah. Okay. That, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So it could be tied or it could be the Tony Long character. Also what makes it even more confusing in a good way is that Michelle uh, Chung's character, Maggie, no, excuse me, Maggie Chung's characters uh, has the same name as her character in 2046 and in the mood for love. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So, because I I read like a like within just a minute of each other, okay, there was planned to be a sequel, but that never happened. But then this is also part of a loose trilogy with those two other movies. So maybe I won't fully understand that until I see those other two. But uh, is it just the character's name? Is there more carryover? Is it kind of just a spiritual sequel? Uh, how does that work? My 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 understanding is that um, between Days of Being Wild and In the Mood for Love is a spiritual sequel. So, for example, like the Tony Long character 
is not the same necessarily the mm-hmm. same character that is in in the mood for love but in the mood for love and 2046 are much more closely linked um, and some people see it as a direct I see 2046 as a direct sequel to in the mood for love but it is open for interpretation like the way the films are put together you can read into it what you want so it doesn't have to be a direct sequel uh, it could be a thematic or a spiritual sequel um, they all explore sort of similar themes they're all period pieces um, and they all sort of deal with these same issues of longing and memory and regret and, and things. Hmm. Well, I'm excited to to watch the rest of those. I've heard, you know, such high praise for In the Mood for Love forever. So I'm excited to, to finally watch that. It'll be a, a few movies away. Um, yeah, so I guess we kind of ran through what's on the disc. Uh, I, I did watch both of those interviews. Let me see if there's anything else. Um, interesting from those oh in the Christopher Doyle interview he's and he's kind of addressing a, a, a crowd at a Q&A or something but he talks about that final scene so so Tony Lung is in like a, a room with a, a very low ceiling uh, and he and, and the, the camera's kind of gliding back and forth and he explains it's because he was carrying this camera in this low room and he could barely keep it up and so he, he as he's watching it and it, like it shows us he's like okay now now my right leg was super tired now my left leg was super tired so i'm going going back and forth it looks beautiful just like an interesting shot but that was kind of some funny background there um and he said that so this is one of his first if not his first feature um that he ever did and he said that maggie chung hated him for a long time because they had to do so many takes for him because he he was kind of like getting the shot right um and some and he talked about there's some like elaborate five minute long uh maybe not that quite that long but like a long sequence that they had to do over and over and over and over because he as a cameraman was having to adjust things and then they ended up cutting the scene anyway (laughs) so he he felt really bad about that uh that was kind of funny uh, he talked about that train station shot um and then uh, one other just interesting thing so they're in the philippines and apparently the one of the characters kind of in the background as this crowd comes in is the daughter of the Filipino president. That's kind of interesting Mm. cameo thing. And then in the Maggie Chung interview, it's just audio and it's kind of showing scenes from the movie as it's playing. Uh, But she says that days of being wild is maybe her favorite movie she's ever been in. I thought that was kind of cool. Um, She talked about people in the sixties kind of having an aimlessness. Like the the tempo of life is slower is the way she put it. And that's uh, kind of plays into it to this movie. Um, this is, uh, oh, the sequel would have taken place six years later, um, but they would have both been released at the same time, but like have a, or, or like close at the same time, about a six year gap in between the movies and that she did many of the scenes with Tony Lung, as I mentioned before, um, but the financing didn't, didn't play out. Um, and then she just mentioned that a lot of the viewers thought it was kind of slow and boring. They may have been expecting an action movie um, from this person who just made As Tears Go By a few years before. Um, but she says she really likes it and she actually hates action movies. <laughs> she, like she, said, <laughs> she hates doing them and she hates watching them. Uh, of course, she's in uh, Police Story with Jackie Chan. So that's kind of a funny thing. It showed like clips of her in that as she's saying she hates action movies oh that was kind of funny uh so i think that's that's kind of the main things out of that one uh and then of course the alternate cut we talked about and so i guess that kind of gets us to the end of to the end of the supplements there anything else about uh days of being wild that we should discuss before we wrap up um i think just that everybody needs to go out and watch it as soon as possible (laughs) um don't be dissuaded by potential spoilers i don't think we really well did we really spoil anything i don't think so like so the fact that he does uh you know 
at least find his birth mother, even if they don't connect. But I don't think that's a really a major spoiler. There's some stuff at the end we did not spoil. Yeah, that, you know, uh, some surprises there. On Switchblade Sisters, April Wolf used to have this thing where she would always say, remember, it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes the film worth mm-hmm. watching. And that's yeah. kind of my motto. So even if, even if you know, uh, the, the unfolding of the events in the film is only part of it. Yeah. So... I think yeah. especially in the movies, like by really, really good directors like this, it, it's almost unspoilable in a way. I don't know. Like if there's like some major twist, I wouldn't want to know. But but yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think if there's there's really anything to be spoiled necessarily about this movie. And uh, yeah, it's, I think it's fantastic. And it, I'm just really excited to get into the rest of these. And uh, I think these are like I, like I enjoyed it watching it, but then like the after the fact thinking through it and even like taking notes for this podcast really enriches it and and these criterion supplements so like th- this is the kind of movie that i think is really um uh made even better by kind of the discourse around it and um yeah like well, this is the reason that criterion kind of set is is a great way to experience these these movies so anyway yes highly recommend yeah. days of being wild um i'm, I'm excited because so leslie chung is going to come back in um happy together uh and maybe a, another one i can't remember but and I, I think of course we'll have maggie chung and tony lung and, and a few other things so excited to see them again uh next in the marathon is going to be chunking express which is uh i think when i first heard of wong kar Wai, i heard about in the mood for love and chunking express so that, i don't know if this is like one of his most major films or something they're certainly the most i think there's a lot of supplements because criterion previously had a uh, a standalone for this one so i think there's a lot to to watch as far as extra features so i'm gonna try to make cut out some time to to watch all of those things but yes i'm really excited to watch this again uh and and i i think yeah it should be good do you have any kind of uh initial thoughts as before we watch chunking express things to watch for or, or anything like that um i would just say pay attention to the bifurcated nature of the story because mm-hmm. it is is two distinct halves um other than that i you know i think it's been several years since i've seen it so i'm excited to watch it again yeah me too and i, I remember a sequence that dealt with a toy airplane that was really memorable so i'm excited to i don't remember exactly what's going on around it but i remember oh, it being right. really cool so that you know what i i feel like chunking expressly the first time that we'll really be able to talk about the changes mm, that with the that, restoration are, that are a result of yes the restorations of this set because i i believe that they are more significant than what they have been to this point okay interesting i'll try to do some digging around that too and and bring some information but yeah and and i know there's like there's side-by-side comparisons and things out there that people have done so i'll try to find those and link to them and speaking of linking to things for this one i do have the david borden uh david bordwell Boardwell, yes, the David Boardwell uh, essay or, or article about the restoration. And also someone on uh, moviecensorship.com did a little post that uh, does some comparison side-by-side shots and things. So I'll, I'll link to that as well. Well, cool. That is Days of Being Wild. Uh, thank you again so much, Amaya, for, for being here. And we'll, we'll talk to you next time. All right. Thank you. Thanks, as always, to Amaya for being here. And that will do it for this doozy of an episode we've only been doing two films per episode for a little while now but i don't think i've ever loved both movies quite as much as i love both of these the green knight and days of being wild are now definitely among my favorite films so this has been a pleasure don't forget to check out the show notes for links to the bentonville film festival and the fort smith film festival 
And with that, thank you, thank you for listening to Art House Garage. We've got a few years worth of episodes now, and you can hear all of those in your podcast app of choice. Our theme music is by composer Paul Hunefeld. You can learn more at appallingproductions.com or find a link in the show notes. If you want to support Art House Garage, leave a rating or review in your podcast app, or you can buy an Art House Garage t-shirt at arthousegarage.com shop. Stay in the loop about Art House Garage and the films we're covering by subscribing to our email newsletter. That's at arthousegarage.com slash subscribe, or you can email me directly, andrew, at arthousegarage.com. And of course, follow on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Just search at Arthouse Garage in all those places, or find links in the show notes. And that will do it for this episode. Thank you again so much for listening. And until next time, keep it snob free. Snob free.